Herzlich willkommen beim On the Way to New Work Podcast. In dieser Folge konnte nur leider ich dabei sein, Christoph Magnussen. Michael hat es nicht geschafft nach München. Er ist ja traurig. Er hätte auch gerne Stuart Butterfield getroffen, den Gründer von Slack. Was ich aber sagen will, bevor es losgeht, auch mit dem Werbepartner, wir haben in dieser Folge etwas Probleme mit dem Setup. Das hatten wir auch schon in anderen Folgen. Wir haben auch Folgen schon nicht ausgestrahlt, weil der Sound zu schlecht war. Hier war es uns jetzt zu wichtig, doch auszustrahlen, weil Stuart nur den einen Tag in Deutschland war und auch nur ähm, sehr wenige Zeitungen und uns getroffen hat. Und deswegen wollten wir uns das nicht missen lassen. Wir versprechen hoch und heilig, wir arbeiten gerade daran, das Setup zu verbessern. Und zwar ziemlich aufwendig. Wir werden auch mit größerem Equipment wahrscheinlich dann reisen unterwegs sein. Gebt uns die Zeit, hört trotzdem in die Folge rein. Sorry dafür, dass es nicht perfekt ist. Die Mikrofone sind wahnsinnig empfindlich. Und wir werden künftig wieder mehr darauf achten, dass das nicht passiert. Danke euch fürs dranbleiben. Bevor es heute mit der Folge mit dem Schwerpunkt Tools, Cloud-Tools und eines der, ich sag mal, hottest Player on the Market losgeht, begrüßen wir unseren heutigen Werbepartner Teamleader, die eben auch im Cloud-Tool-Bereich unterwegs sind. Und Teamleader hat ein besonderes Anliegen dieses Mal. Es geht nämlich darum, dass Teamleader als Tool, was eigentlich eine, eine kann man sich vorstellen, eine One-Stop-Lösung ist für CRM, Projektmanagement, Zeitmanagement, Rechnungsstellung und so weiter. Also alles in einem Tool, das ihr nicht wechseln müsst. Und hier mal eine besondere Herausforderung, dass in jedem Land andere Lieblings-Apps genutzt werden von den Leuten. Das heißt, die einen wünschen sich eine E-Mail-Integration, die nächsten eine SaaS-Buchhaltung. Und genau zu dem Zweck hat Teamleader einen Marktplatz mit Hunderten von Integrationen aufgesetzt. Und da das noch mehr werden sollen, haben sie jetzt ein Fonds aufgesetzt mit einer Million Euro, um Software-Tools zu finanzieren. Das heißt, deren Ziel ist jetzt, 1000 Integrationen auf die Beine zu stellen. Wer also gerade ein neues Tool für mittelständische Unternehmen gebaut hat und Zugang zu diesem Markt sucht und auch noch dafür bezahlt wird, der sollte sich das Ganze mal genauer anschauen. Und die Informationen dazu bekommt ihr unter teamleader.de blog. Und jetzt viel Spaß bei der Folge mit Stuart Butterfield von Slack. Welcome to the On the Way to New Work podcast and I stay and won't switch from English to German because I have a guest here, Stuart Butterfield, the founder and CEO of Slack. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for meeting. My partner Michael is very upset not being here because um, we were quite excited to meet you. That's your only day in Germany and everyone in our podcast in every episode is now talking about Slack. Mm -hmm. And I know you for a while, I've been following your story, so um, I'm quite curious to meet the person behind the tool, which is more than a tool, but we will come to that. Would you mind giving me a little bit of background, who you are, what you do for people who might know what you're doing right now? Sure. Um, I'm not sure exactly where to start, so you can feel free to interject and you ask questions. We have, we have no rush at all. Okay. Well, I, can, <laughs> I could probably fill up a couple of days. Um, I was born in, um, in British Columbia and grew up there and went to university in 1992 and so it was just before the web became a popular phenomenon but we still were, were given internet access when we entered university and it really kind of changed my whole life um, and was very exciting the idea that people could transcend geography and you could make connections with people all over the world and then when the web took off um, I was there from the beginning um, so I had the opportunity to um, learn or teach myself HTML in the really early days. Uh, my summer job through university was to make web pages for people. 
And my plan was to be a philosophy professor. I did an uh, undergraduate degree in philosophy and then went to graduate school and did uh, a master's degree. And I was going to do a PhD, but um, it was 1998. And my friends who were doing internet stuff were having a lot more fun and making more money. And it was really exciting. It was kind of like the beginning stages of the, uh, of the initial dot-com wave. And so I started doing that. And... Um, kind of compressed the last 20 years from 1998 to now. It was um, work at a, a dot-com company that blew up, and I left just before the crash. Um, started a game company in 2002 that failed and ended up making the photo-sharing site Flickr. Um, Flickr was acquired by Yahoo, went to go work there for a few years, and then with the same group of people, started another company to make a web-based massively multiplayer game, which also failed. Um, but we had developed a system for internal communication while we were working on the game that we really loved, and that thing became Slack. That's very compressed, but um, there's a lot in that story, and um, thank you. So you mentioned quickly it's the same team, so like the team that is at Slack is the same um, from the Flickr times back then? Well, there's now over a thousand people at Slack, so well, it's much bigger. But um, the f there's four co-founders of the company, mm -hmm. um, one of whom uh, I started working with 20 years ago in mm -hmm. 1998 at a dot-com company called um, Communicate.com in mm -hmm. Vancouver. And um, in 1999, 2000, I started this web design competition called the 5K, which became, oh, sorry, the 5K, so five kilobytes, um, became a huge worldwide phenomenon, I think partly in um, response to the excesses of the dot-com era, because the point of the contest was to see what kind of web page or website you could build in five kilobytes of data. And um, one of the people who entered that competition had a, uh, an entry which I particularly liked, and I was writing with him back and forth, and we ended up working together. Um, and that was the second of the four co-founders. And then um, we started this, uh, started working on what was called Game Never Ending in 2002. And while we were working on that, there was a fan of ours um, who was from the UK um, and was building little like social network explorer tools to explore the social networks of the game and other extensions. Even though we didn't have any kind of API, he was a good hacker. And it turned out that he had broken into our mailing list, um, and was just reading all of our email, and mm -hmm. we ended up hiring him, <laughs> uh, and that was the, the fourth. Yeah. So um, that same group of people has been working together since you know, 2004, so the, the newest relationship is now 14 years old. Wow. So let's, let's jump right into it, because I think everyone is curious about um, what Slack is doing currently. Um, I very early followed your the closed beta and um, I saw your articles um, and I always try to showcase it to people and say, well, it helps you to open up communication and makes collaboration more transparent, faster, a lot faster. And then I stumbled upon your article, We Don't Sell Saddles Here in 2013. And I shared that uh, publicly with my team, with everyone um, I could see and said, this is, this is what it's about. It's transforming businesses. Mm -hmm. And there's this famous quote from, I think it was John Culkin, I'm not 100% sure. I should look that up before the podcast. Um, we shape the tools and thereafter the tools shape us. Yeah. And Slack is definitely one of these tools shaping to a new way of working, to a more open way of working. 
Can you elaborate a little bit on your own perspective? Because now is the source of this article sitting in front of me. Sure. Um, first of all, I've heard that um, same phrase slightly differently attributed to Winston Churchill. Okay. Was, uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Um, but I think it's, they're all, it's definitely true. And it's not just tools, but buildings, culture, art, everything. Um, there's this interesting dialectical relationship between the, what humans create and the impact it has on us and kind of like echoes and reverberations. So it, that was written um, in the middle of 2013, um, around the time we were starting our preview release. So it's like a private beta. We were just mm -hmm. inviting people. And now it's five years later. Um, and we're just coming back to some of those ideas and trying to explain them a little bit better, but it's still kind of vague and, and hazy and messy. Um, but I think you actually, you articulated it quite well. The a big increase in transparency that results in an increase in velocity or people's ability to get work done. And um, what's been really interesting is um, trying to get it why that is. So like I said, this is five years later. We did the preview release. We had some enthusiastic users. Uh, we launched in February of 2014 and grew very quickly. And since then, you know, we went from 20 employees to 80 to 300 to 600, and now we're over a thousand. And um, over 8 million daily active users and 70,000 paid customers. And we have a Twitter account called Slack Love Tweets. It just retweets mm. nice things that people say. And we have um, you know, a whole customer success team. We have account executives. We have a huge customer experience team. It just spends all day talking to customers. We have user researchers. And we've spent, I don't even know, ten, many tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of hours in direct communication with customers. And we still don't know exactly what it is that people like about it. So <laughs> in their tweets, they'll say, you know, sometimes it'll be a response to something specific that happened, like, boy, the customer support was great, or I really like this new feature, or some, some tiny thing like that. But often people will say something like, I don't know how we would work without it, or it's transformed our whole company. And trying to get to the heart of what that is and, and why people like it is harder than you might think. Because, you know, we can make a, a big marketing claim that just say it's organizational transformation. Don't worry about it. Just trust us. <laughs> um, but then you get to a more serious audience. And earlier today, we were talking about, like, you know, we're here in Germany. 60% um, of the labor force is in the Mittelstand companies, um, not always at the avant-garde, you know, sometimes very conservative. Um, but also, if you're not, you know, someone who's a technology enthusiast, who's not just already, you don't have a predisposition to try everything that, that's new, you want the business case. You want to understand why would I invest in this? Why, you know, why am I going to pay this money? But also, why am I going to ask my people to um, use up all of their time learning a new tool? What do I get from it? And the easy sale for many things that businesses buy is a reduction in cost. I don't think you really get that with Slack. I mean, maybe you could over the long run because people become more effective and you have to hire fewer people to get the same thing done. Um, I don't even know that it ultimately saves you time, but I do think it gives you a much bigger return on the effort that you put into communication. Because if you think about um, what people actually do in their day-to-day -day work, we take our company, um, we're a software developer, so maybe it's a little bit different, but 
uh, at the lowest end, the people who spend the least amount of time on internal communication, maybe a, um, a back-end systems programmer who's naturally kind of shy and introverted, and they might spend 30% of their time on communication because they're still reading other people's bug reports and responding to them. They're attending meetings. They have a one-on-one -on -one with their manager. There's documentation being published internally on how we're changing systems. There's notes on the pull requests and check-ins that they do when they're writing their code. Um, but that's the least. You know, For managers, they spend 95 to 100% of their time on communication. Executives just spend 100%. But uh, salespeople, uh, many people who work in finance, um, accounting, recruiting, legal, IT, their job is mostly to talk to other people. Um, and we put an enormous amount of effort into it. We have the daily stand-up meetings. People write status reports. There's a big PowerPoint deck on um, our plans for this quarter or what happened last quarter. Um, and yeah, just like hours at least of effort every single day. And I know this is a pretty circuitous way to get to it, but if you have that conversation in email, everyone ends up with like a fractured partial version of what's going on. And if you have that conversation in Slack, everyone's looking at the same thing. Like the history of the channel is the same to any participant, including people who aren't a member of the channel right now. And they could be looking in from other parts of the organization, like a, a designer looking into marketing or a salesperson looking into customer support. Um, or people who don't work at the company yet. You know, that's still, it's a resource for them, even though they might not start until next week or next month or next year. Um, and just that alone, just that like moving from individual-based communication to kind of organizational-based communication is incredibly powerful. You know, just like the amount of time that gets saved in, um, in catching people up, uh, the transparency really drives increased alignment. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something that we're still trying to figure out how to explain or articulate because, first of all, we don't usually have the whatever, it just took me four minutes or something like that to explain it. You know, we have 10 seconds to explain it, to, to capture someone's imagination. Because if you are, you know, um, you construct printing machines for like the, um, for people who print coupons for supermarkets or something like that, um, you're not necessarily on the lookout for something that transforms your internal communication. Um, and you It'll, it's tough to convince you that there's a significantly better way because we just take communication for granted. Yeah, I 100% I agree. I mean, I have also client perspective. I can just share with you like two perspectives I get from clients. Like, um, I always push very, very hard on transparency. So, so the option to or having the chance to be able to search for an information within a company within the network. And um, when I started my my last company. That was pre-Slack, so it was very hard to find a way to do that. Back then, you had to use like feed tools, something like rebuilding Facebook internally to use that, or Google Plus, um, something that is not that common now, but also like Google Drive where you can share the information. And I can just share like there are the startups starting use it, using it and stumbling into it and saying, yeah, it works fine. We don't need anyone explaining us how it works. And they use it and it's a bit chaotic and they find their way. And then we experience like clients of ours, partners of ours, they say, hey, we tried that and it's overwhelming for us. It doesn't work. 
and then we we see and look into how they use it and then you look at the slack channels and you see they're all closed mm -hmm. and you're like well you actually uh take it away from the core idea that it has if you make everything close then you technically i always say you just chop emails into 90 pieces and send it around you need a certain transparency within the channels which needs again a bit of trust and change in leadership as far as i can see so this is kind of the the thing we experienced here when we work um, with companies using slack so especially this change in leadership is that something you share like how do you see that when how, yeah, how, how do um, leaders need to adopt let's say we struggle a little bit with how prescriptive we want to be um so that you know telling customers you must use slack in this way uh on the other hand if, you know i think we probably err too far in hoping that people will figure it out for themselves because a lot of them are looking for best practices. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. um, there's kind of a continuum between, at the one end, people just talking. Like, I have a question. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be trivial. Like, when is that meeting next week? You know, it's just basic factual question. Um, and then you start to get into more structured requests, like, I would like to hire a new person and maybe there's a procedure at the company, I fill out a form or there's some kind of request process that I undergo. Um, and then at the furthest end of the spectrum is like more heavyweight processes that are often backed by um, software on the other side. So um, depending on how you have things set up, maybe a promotion works like that inside your company, it ties to your HR system or a purchase request ties to the finance system or um, closing a sale it has some um, some code around it in, in Salesforce. And in that middle tier, people often invent ways to handle those workflows inside of Slack. And uh, this is not something that we planned, and it's not something that anyone... I mean, obviously, someone came up with the idea, but it wasn't like a, a labor-saving idea. And for us, it was creating a channel called Legal Approved. And anyone who had a contract, whether it was from a vendor or from a customer, could drop a PDF or a Word file of the contract in. And then one of the lawyers would put the eyeball emoji on it. And uh, when they did that, you knew that they're looking at it. But all of the other lawyers knew that someone was already looking at that as well. Um, so it was this, you know, it's a hyper-efficient way to do it. You just drop it in, and whoever can take that one, whoever is available, not so busy, they put the eyeball emoji on it. Let's say um, a woman named Amy does it. So Amy does it, and all of her colleagues um, can see that they don't have to anymore. And then when she's done, she puts a green check mark. And there's a couple of things. One is I know where we're at um, as the person who made the request to get the contract approved. Um, all the other lawyers know where we are, and um, there was no extra communication that had to happen. Amy didn't have to tell anyone else. I didn't have to tell anyone else. It's just, I mean, it's literally just the little emoji reaction. And then we have this timestamped chronology of everything that happened. And it sounds like such a kind of trivial example, and it is, except that your day is full of hundreds of those things. You know, like just little um, requests across functional boundaries. Um, from one team to another uh, or making a change can you update the website with this new version of the graphic can you um, uh, add these two people to the meeting with the customer you know things like that and if you have better support for those little bits of interaction uh, especially ones that 
require coordination at the group level, you are taking a huge amount of friction out of people's work days and thereby you make them more productive because people are just like made more powerful. And obviously it's a, it's just kind of a strange way to look at it, but, um, really imagine it like giving, um, people who are doing physical labor, better tools. So someone whose job it is to dig ditches, if you give them a shovel, they can dig so many ditches a day. And I don't know what you call it in German, but um, a, a backo, a digger machine in, in English, you know? Like um, like, Bagger, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, you give them one of those and they can dig many more ditches in a day. And we're trying to give knowledge workers or intellectual workers the same kind of tools, but it's because everything is abstract, it's harder mm. both for people to understand um, and for people to even realize, you know, they, they don't, yeah. you have this kind of intellectual scaffolding. And I guess one thing, and I think this is something that will resonate with you. Um, if you look at the tools that individuals use now to get their functional specific work done, like the, um, what I mean is if you're a recruiter, now you have LinkedIn and you can look people up. Um, you have emails, you can get in touch with them. You have an applicant tracking system, um, which handles things like, the scheduling of the interviews and recording everyone's feedback. You maybe have tools that you use to scan resumes. We use a special tool to um, to check all the job descriptions to make sure that they're free of biased language and they're all consistent. Anyway, you do all of that stuff and then you compare it to a recruiter 30 years ago and it's hard to even imagine what they did. You know, Before there was the internet, before they had email, how they would have gotten in touch with people, how they would have found candidates for the jobs that they, they wanted. Um, and again, look at a salesperson. So they also have LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Um, they have a CRM system. They have lead scoring tools. They have marketing automation, feeding them contacts. They have all of these different software systems that make them massively more productive. And it's it's very similar to me to imagine like someone whose job it is to build a wall in a building or to move boxes from one part of the warehouse to the other. Um, you give them a forklift and suddenly they can do five times, 10 times, 20 times as much as they would have been able to do without it. But the tools we have for communication have not improved. So um, I think the recruiter, the salesperson, but also the lawyer, the IT specialist, the um, accountant, all of them are individually much more productive. But when you look at the productivity at the level of the team or the work group or slightly larger, like the whole organization, we haven't seen as much improvement as you might expect. And I think that's because communication is no less difficult than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And people complain about the same things. You know, you try Slack and it's like, it's too noisy. If you have email, you get too much email. And there's this constant tension of, I want to be kept in the loop, so please CC me. And also, I get too much email, so stop CCing me on everything. Um, we have too many meetings. Before, it was too many phone calls, too many memos. You know, like there's always, um, there's always something. And I think it just turns out that communication is actually hard. You know, it's hard to coordinate people. Um, it requires real effort. And it's not something that anyone has ever paid attention to. And uh, it really resonates with me. And it sounds very humble when you say that. And you say, like, um, this is the way how we do it and we we are not sure but um obviously it to me it feels like and i'm i would i would claim i, I get a lot of different perspectives um, from different companies and I'm, i'm allowed to work with these tools every day and also like to see what works what doesn't work it feels like slack is kind of a big part of this movement into like let's change the way people work let's do this new work style um and i would love to understand a bit better 
where this urge came when you said, hey, we had this company and it didn't work, but we had this chat tool that we built or this group communication tool that we built and we thought we just do this. You just said it in like 30 seconds, so that was this 30 seconds pitch, but <laughs> but um, there must be, well, I, I assume there is an urge like when you started and I would learn a little bit more about this this motivation to like get into that because even back then it was a quite crowded market. There were chat apps, other big players. Sounds like a bold decision. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different answers. So one is about the um, shutting down of the game itself, which is maybe just, we'll leave it aside for now. We can come back if you're interested, but um, that's obviously very difficult. Um, but we did that when we still had investor money left. We had maybe like $5 million in the bank. Um, so we're able to do it in a pretty elegant way. And it wasn't an immediate decision to build something like Slack, but it happened relatively quickly. There was a lot of um, debate about what we might want to do next. All of us agreed that no matter what we were going to do next, um, we would never work without a tool like that one that we had built, which at that time didn't even have a name. It, it wasn't what we're offering to the public now. We rebuilt it from scratch. Um, it was based on a very old technology called IRC. But um, I, mean, I guess two things. One, we had the advantage of not thinking that we were designing anything. So this was just this thing that we used internally to communicate. It didn't have a name. Um, no one was assigned to work mm -hmm. on it. We just made improvements whenever we really needed them. And, and because we were very cheap in terms of like investing in this thing, because it wasn't anyone's job, we would let those changes sit for a long time before making the next change. We really... It was just the necessity, and there's there's no ego, there was no speculation. It wasn't like I have a crazy idea for what a user might want. It was only those things that we absolutely needed. So one, we ended up with great product market fit because of that. But two, you said that the market was crowded. For us, it just looked like there was no one. I mean, it was just wide open. There was um, tools already out there. There was HipChat from Atlassian. There was uh, Campfire, um, a tool called Flock. Um, or Flowdoc, mm. um, and there's you know just a handful of others, but no one used them. You know, like mm. 99, probably 99.9 percent .9 of all the people who could use a tool like that weren't using one. So effectively, there was nothing. The second one was we had no idea that Slack would ever get this big. You know, like we we thought when we went back to our investors and said, hey, you know, here's what we want to do. We think that one day we could have a hundred million dollars in revenue, and on that basis, be a billion dollar company. And they were skeptical of that, but well, that was our big ambition. Like that was what we thought the whole market was worth, and we got to 100 million in revenue in uh, I don't know, like the first two years. I mean, it was a, it was a long time ago, um, and now we think it's more like you know, 50 to 100 x bigger than than that. So um, not only did it not seem crowded, uh, it seemed much more modest than it turned out to be. And if you with the benefit of hindsight, you look back, you know, it's like mm. there was nothing and it was this enormous potential market. And we were just lucky to be the first ones with the kind of resources and the product to be able to take advantage of it. I, I, I get I get the, the point and the perspective and I 100% agree because like when you look at it from that perspective, you actually shaped your market. Yeah. You, you shaped the market if you, and that's, that's the thing, I just did the same thing some people do when they look at it and say like, well, it's just a chat tool or it's just for that. It's not, it's yeah. like more than that. Um, get it and, and, and I, buy, I buy into that. 
freuen uns über unseren zweiten Werbepartner, heute die Firma Videobeat, Experten für datengetriebenes Videomarketing. Videobeat hat sich insbesondere mit einem sehr modernen Ansatz für TV-Werbung für E-Commerce-Unternehmen einen Namen gemacht. Dabei misst das Unternehmen den Impact von jedem einzelnen TV-Spot auf den Website-Traffic mit einem eigenen TV-Tracking-Tool. Und anhand dieser Daten misst Videobeat KPIs wie Cost per Visit, also der CPV und Reaktionsquote. Und diese kann man dann mit den CPCs und CTRs von AdWords und Co. vergleichen. Und anhand dieser KPIs optimiert Videobeat die Kampagne nach Sendern, verschiedener Spotmotive, Wochentagen, Uhrzeiten runter bis zum genauen TV-Programm und hilft euch so, TV zum wirklich messbaren und skalierbaren Performance-Marketing-Kanal zu entwickeln. Videobeat kümmert sich um den gesamten Prozess von der Strategiefindung über die Erstellung von Conversion-optimierten Spots bis hin zur granularen Mediaplanung und kontinuierlichen datengetriebenen Optimierung. Das nicht nur in Deutschland, sondern in den wichtigsten Märkten der Welt. Die Company hat sich in kürzester Zeit wirklich einen Namen gemacht, arbeitet sowohl für führende E-Commerce-Größen wie Home2Go, Eve und Finanzcheck, aber auch für Unternehmen aus der Old Economy wie Comdirect, Daimler und Sennheiser. Die Company beschäftigt mehr als 70 TV-Experten in seinen fünf Büros in Hamburg, Berlin, Paris, London und New York. Und schon geht's weiter mit Christoph und Slay. One thought took uh, stayed with me and, and sparked something. Um, so you grew very fast yourself when you started. Yeah. And um, I would love to understand a bit better how it changed internally, not only Slack-wise, but also culture-wise using Slack on this journey from 20 people to 1,000 people. I mean, I guess there were different stages and stuff like that. Is there something you can share from, from that journey? Yeah, absolutely. This is a good one. Um, so when we first started development, we were eight people. And in that kind of eight to 20, um, it was more or less the same. First of all, it's few enough people that everyone can know what everyone else is doing. It does, it's not too expensive. I mean, obviously, with a thousand people, most people don't even know, you know the names of five to 800 of their colleagues. Mm -hmm let alone what they're working on right now. But a small enough team, everyone can know. And anyone who has an opinion on anything can weigh in on that. Because why not? It's not too many. You know, maybe you make a proposal for something, and of the 12 people who work at the company in that moment, three of them care about it. And so they give you some feedback, and that's no problem. But we kept working that exact same way when we had 30 people, and 40 people, and 50 people, 60 people. and. Um, Suddenly, we have this realization that this just this doesn't work. It's um, this is we're spending so much time. Everyone's giving feedback on everything. Everyone's trying to stay in the loop on everything that's happening. And we wrote a memo internally called "Slack is a distracting menace." Um, and the point of it was we needed to change how we use this tool. Um, going back to something I said earlier. Uh, we try not to be too prescriptive about how people use it. And I gave that example of legal approved, which is something that evolved for us, um, but it also evolved. There's very, very similar um, things have evolved at many different customer companies. And those things, those best practices, we probably should share um, so people don't have to stumble upon them themselves. Um, and there's probably some, uh, I don't know, rules of thumb uh, for how you should use Slack that everyone should know. So for example, Uh, to, to something that you said earlier, you should try to have the conversation in the most public channel you can. 
that's reasonable. So some things are confidential. You have to keep them private. Um, but often people end up with many channels, like a, you know, a private one with a very small group, um, maybe a larger private one, a public channel, you know, and the, the nested series of channels that are bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you can have a channel, have the conversation in a very broad um, venue, then more people can see it, more people have the benefit of it, they can search it and, and all of that. And that's something that we should tell people as well. But um, we wanted to change the way that we used it in I think in, in some ways that are applicable to everyone and in some ways that are you know really specific and to, to the way that we worked. Um, and that's the part that is going to be different for every single customer, different for every kind of organization. Um, people just have different, you know, completely different needs and different cultures and different habits. Um, not just company cultures, but like they come from different communication cultures. Like the, I can't remember what you what you say at the beginning of a work email in Germany, uh, but everyone has to say the same thing at the beginning of their email. Mm. Um, otherwise, it's very it's very rude. But if you're sending a message to someone on WhatsApp or Slack, it can be much more terse and and still not be conveyed as rude. Yeah, I know. Like some of our younger employees said, like. Why do you send emails? I'm like, what do you mean? We always send emails, and I say, like, yeah, but you need the subject, and then you have a signature, and there are images in the email. Why? Like, what is it for? And even in Germany, you have this legal, legal thing. And then I realized, yeah, well, what we did to the email is actually we took the facts and uh, made it electronical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is an it just comes up to my mind. There is a great video of Steve Jobs when he was interviewed about the email, and he explains to a journalist what the email is. Do you know that? No, I, I show you it later if you don't mind. It's yeah. because it reminds me of of that video, and he tries to explain the journalist how communication becomes more transparent and faster and less meetings. And mm. um, I think you could just put after that video, and he's talking about Slack. Um, I I use it for some of the talks. I show you it later. Okay. Um, but going to thousand people. And, and this is something I hear very often. They say, yeah, this whole new work thing and working more digital and more remote and more collaborative works with a couple of uh, tens or maybe 100 people, but it doesn't work with thousand. That's what people claim. Yeah. Let's stay with that for a moment because I th I'm pretty sure people are curious um, to learn how does Slack operate with thousand people on Slack or maybe also like stuff that you use that is very typical for your company culture? I don't know. How do you do meetings? Um, do you do them in, in Slack? Is, is everything public? What is closed? Is there stuff you can share best practice-wise from, yeah, from Slack headquarters itself? Yeah, there definitely, there's, there's a lot of those, but I should say that Slack is used um, in much larger organizations than ours yeah. by, by many more people. So um, a lot of the companies that are the largest are American, um, but they're media companies like 21st Century Fox, um, software companies like Oracle. Uh, IBM is our biggest customer. There's over 150,000 daily active users there, so a totally different scale than our thousand. Um, there's a bank called Capital One. Um, Moody's, one of the uh, analysts and rating agencies, And all of them have you know thousands and thousands of people using it simultaneously. So sometimes we learn from them. You know what 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 stops working when you get to five thousand people or when you get to ten thousand people. Um, so some of the things that work really well for us is to um, 
every team have a channel um, so that you can, there's an easy way to, to reach everyone on that team and it's more for announcements um, as opposed to getting actual work done. So let's say I want to reach a marketing team, I could yeah. drop into the marketing team. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and we've organized those slightly. Um, there's often like a team prefix, so team marketing, um, so you can easily find the team that you're looking for. Um, but then for the day-to-day -day work, it's usually concentrated on specific projects. Um, because we're a software development firm, uh, on the product development side, people often make a um, uh, like a feedback channel so that everyone can um, ask, you know, give their feedback to people who aren't on the team. There can be a technical one. There can be one for marketing because we plan how we're going to launch this feature. Um, and having some kind of structure that's in common between how each project is set up is very, very helpful. Like having a template for it because then you know, oh, I just heard about this, you know, uh, whatever it was, eight months ago, we launched in German. So there obviously, that's a huge amount of work. We're mm -hmm. doing the, there's software we have to write, and there's design changes we have to make to accommodate the language, and there's translations, and then there's going to be a press event, and um, we have to update all of the different, like the iOS client and the Android client. And if I just heard about this, or there's something I wanted to say to that team, having a similar structure on that team that we would have to, um, any other one inside the company makes it much easier for me to find the correct group because otherwise a lot of people and, and this does happen just spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the right channel to, to say this or to make this announcement um so that's one is kind of having patterns um and similar structures and using similar prefixes or language and actually there's one great example from that slack is a distracting menace memo that happened at the same time and what happened was um, a customer support agent would get a request from a customer. And the customer says, I did X and then Y happened. And the customer support person says, huh, that sh should be impossible. I can't figure that out. And so they look into it for a while on their own. Um, and then they go to, uh, let's say this is in the Android app. They go to the channel with all the Android engineers and they say, hey, a customer said they did X and then Y happened. And maybe half the people don't pay attention to it. Um, but the other half look at it and they're thinking about it and then they go and start stepping through the code line by line or they look at the documentation we wrote at the time we did the feature or they like search the bug database to see if there's bugs that match this. And then someone comes up with a correct answer and everyone else just wasted their time. Um, and that became less and less effective the bigger we got because now I have a question, an Android engineer can answer it, there's three of them, then there's 10 of them, then there's 20 of them, then there's 40 of them. Um, and it becomes something we just, you can't afford to ask every single person. So um, at that time, we created what we called triage channels. And um, for every part of the engineering group, you know, for like the web app, for search, for um, iOS, um, we would have a triage channel. There was one person on duty every day. Um, they, you know, they changed, really rotated shifts. And when someone had a question from outside of that group, that one person would figure out who the correct people were to answer it, and they would kind of handle it. So what be was like one-to-many communication became more one-to-one, -one, so it became more scalable. That worked so well that within like two weeks, the entire company had reorganized so that there was um, 
triage finance and there was triage benefits for HR. There was um, triage hiring. There was like every part of the company had now exposed an interface to every other part of the company with one person in charge to help effectively route those, those questions or, or sometimes comments or requests or, or whatever. Um, and there was like this massive, like that was probably a, I don't know, like a, a 5% impact on the productivity of the whole company which 5% might not sound like much, but that's, yeah, that's like many years worth of accumulated productivity gains um, in the outside economy. It was, you know, you find one of those every year. um, That's amazing. Like suddenly the, you know, the organization becomes so much more effective, but you also find dozens of of much smaller, less important things. Um, And we, even though we're, you know, we've been using Slack the longest because we're Slack, um, and we use it very intensely also because we're Slack. We're only one organization, and there's you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands around the world using it. So we still learn quite a bit from customers. Like they'll come back with amazing examples like that that are that are really good. And I think we do a, at this point a pretty lousy job of getting those out to people. Like they're, they're, it would be great to have one central clearinghouse for the best Slack tips of all time. Let's keep working on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to collect more of that. I, I didn't uh, know that idea of triage channels. That's a great example. Thank you for, for sharing that. How do you do the physical work? Like, How do you organize the physical workspace? Is there stuff that you can change, share? I mean, like also, I talk also about like meetings, like in which occasions do people meet each other? Um, it's like so. Yeah, I should say actually, we use we're big enough now, and and we would recommend this for most companies with more than about 500 employees. We use um, a version of Slack called Enterprise Grid, so you have more than one workspace, and the workspaces can be federated together. Uh, you could have shared channels between them. Um, when someone joins the company and they're provisioned into the into Slack, they're assigned to multiple workspaces. Um, and just figuring out how to structure that was its own big task. You know, uh, we have one workspace for product development, and there's many people who aren't in product development in there. But it's much more for like the day-to-day work of those teams. Um, and then there's one that's global, and it has all of the office locations inside of it. There's one for the executives. There's one for marketing. There's one for sales. And between them, there's many shared channels. Um, and that was like a, I don't even know, like a three-month project with one person whose full-time job it was to get feedback from everyone, plan out the transition, and we took the thousands and thousands of channels that we had already created and like kind of packaged them together into the different workspaces, and um, that transition was, was itself really long. Um, but then there's the rest of it, the meetings, and uh, we are in a continual state of, of, of evolving um, because, because we've been growing so quickly. As soon as we found a good process for something, it would be obsoleted by the scale. You imagine like you're doubling more than mm. once per year. There was one all hands at the company when we, this year, I guess it was 2015, we went from 80 people to 320, so two doubles inside of a year. And we say like, okay, put up your hand if you've been at the company for less than three months. And you know, a quarter of the people put up your hand. And less than six months, and like f- more than 50% of people put up their hand. And if you've been here for less than a year, and like 75% of the whole company puts up their hand. Um, 
So, you know, it's, it's rapidly changing. And we also encourage people periodically to cancel any recurring <coughs> meetings. So any meeting that's set up to, you know, happen once a week, every Tuesday, just cancel it and then wait until you need it again. Um, and if it comes back as a recurring meeting, no problem. But it's, uh, people will often just look at their calendar and see what's next and go to the room and sit down they don't necessarily have any intention. They didn't do any preparation. They don't have any concrete agenda items. And it's very, very easy to just like waste a lot of time. It's very easy to waste a lot of time on email. It's very easy to waste a lot of time on Slack. Like it's just going back to what I said at the beginning, it's just hard. Like that's why people complain about it. If it was easy and you could just solve it and there would be no problems, then no one would ever complain about it. But people complain about it all the time because it's tough. That's true. There's an example I use a lot that um, to me is the best illustration of this. So if you go to a conference with a group of people and you see some friends, you know, oh, and they, they have some other friends that they're with and hey, let's go get dinner after the event closes. It's 5.30, you're in a city uh, that has lots of restaurants, everyone has money, everyone's hungry, you're standing outside the venue and now there's like 10 people and there's this conversation of like, okay, this person's vegetarian, uh, my hotel's over in that neighborhood, so we don't want to go this direction, we'll have to get two mm -hmm. taxis, but you know, and it's like 45 minutes goes by and some people decide that maybe they're going to split off and then they come back. Sometimes you just don't even have dinner. Like in, that's how hard humans are to coordinate. Like <laughs> when there's restaurants, you have money, everyone's hungry, you still can't even eat. Yeah, you absolutely, <laughs> I love that picture. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and, uh, yeah. An app cannot uh, save you from that. You also need humans using it in the right way afterwards. Yeah, that's true. Awesome. Um, on on a on a personal level, for you as an entrepreneur, I'm pretty sure a lot of stuff changed. Um, is there anything you can share? We say, well, this is. I mean, you're. We just met a couple of minutes ago, and you're a very calm person. Um, you have a very good. Energy when you come into the room, I can really see that's a nice conversation, uh, and and I was really looking oh, forward you. to that. How did you keep that mood with thousand people um, oh, now on a global scale? I don't always scale? keep that mood. <laughs> it's like, can you share something like because I mean, you have this philosophy background, you have this entrepreneurship background, you commuting. I mean, yeah, I think um, it, it's changed a lot, and I think to be honest, I was very behind um, over the last couple of years of where I was supposed to be because. Um, I obviously have to scale more. Um, if you're not the CEO, um, you know, or let's say you're in, in a job that reports to someone who reports to the CEO, and the company goes from 50 people to 100 to 400, 1,000, um, you'll kind of find the right level, hopefully. You know, if things work out well, maybe, you know, uh, three years later, you're now four reports from the CEO or something like that, but you're always zero reports from the CEO if you're the CEO. So I just, I have to scale at the rate that the, the company does, um, or at least to be successful, I have to, and I'm not sure that I always did. So over the last winter break, um, I had this realization, and I was really trying to think about what my job is. Like, you know, what, what, how should I be spending my time? Because there's endless opportunities to, optimize and there's productivity hacks and tips and people write these articles and um, people think a lot about time management and productivity but also priorities and you know there's just like this whole world of, of stuff and um, 
for me, there's an endless series of interruptions, like every day. I don't mean um, people are getting in my way. I just mean like that's any really important problem or being kind of by definition, any problem that couldn't be solved by someone else will get escalated to me. And, um, and then there's, I don't know, hundreds of requests that come in a day from inside and outside the company. People write me on like Facebook Messenger and LinkedIn and email inside the company or on, on Slack and people have proposals they want to run past me or they want to get some advice or they want to get approval for a project. Anyway, um, it can be so easy to just get lost in that sea of, of requests and interruptions and try to apply whatever the most plausible seeming productivity tip you just got to that pile of stuff and um, you should try to be as effective as possible but you're never going to get close to through all of the requests that people make um, so the job can't just be trying to get to, to the end of all the requests and I thought about it for a long time and I ended up with three parts of the job and this is you know I'm not sure if this is true for every single CEO, but it's, it's pretty broad. Certainly it was true for me now at this time. So the first part is to set the vision and strategy for the company, which sounds very lofty and kind of important. Um, to be honest, that's pretty easy for us because we were very lucky and we um, had a very strong vision that turned out to be what the market wanted. And we have a, a strategy that's working pretty well. There are you know, we have a, a huge competitor in the form of Microsoft who's trying to destroy us. Um, and yet that doesn't seem very daunting because there's still going to be a couple of years out before they have a product that really works for people. Um, so the product, I mean, sorry, the vision strategy is like 5% of my time. And you know, I have to pay attention to customers and pay attention to what's going on inside the company. And, and maybe we change it sometimes, but it, there's something good about having really stable, um, uh, vision that you can believe in. And then the second part is um, governance, administration, and supervisory duties. So, you know, when we have an audit, I have to go talk to the auditors. Um, when there's um, a major financial transaction or we open a new office, I have to approve things, budgets, things like that. We have a great general counsel now, we have a great CFO, and so that takes even less of my time. You know, it's maybe 2%. I still have to have, still have a responsibility to provide oversight over things ultimately, and that, you know, I have to make sure that there's no fraud or malfeasance or we're not making bad decisions. Uh, and that leaves the third part. And the third part is to make sure the organization as a whole is performing at the highest possible level. And that, I think, is like 90% of the job. Of being the CEO, and I, honestly, it's not something I ever really thought of before this winter. I mean, obviously, we would have all hands, where I would write a memo or something, and I could have a meeting and try to inspire people. And the intent of that is always to increase the performance of the whole organization. But I never thought about it explicitly as my job, and because of that, I never um, delegated any of it either. So we had a couple of executives who had a natural predisposition to just do that, um, either because of their prior experience. So um, a guy named Bob Freddy, who heads up sales for Slack, came from Salesforce. He had 800 people there. When you have 800 people, that's all you can really do. He's not going to teach people how to sell. Um, he's not going to do very much selling himself. Um, 
or uh, Ali Rail, who was one of those original eight employees and, and leads customer experience because she had to build an organization that scaled worldwide and you know open offices in Dublin and Melbourne and Toronto and um, and get that 24/7 coverage. She had no option but to do this. But for the rest of the executives, it was, it was kind of it felt like um, I use the analogy of you know a stack of champagne glasses like in a big mm-hmm. pyramid form, and then you pour champagne in the top one, and it flows down. It was like that, except there was no champagne going into the top. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I probably should have had that realization a couple of years earlier. So then there was an explicit goal, which is increase organizational performance, and starting to think about how you do that. Um, and then I don't know. It's kind of like a, I tell you. Tell me if you see any Volkswagens on this drive, and suddenly you'll notice them before you were noticing them. Um, I had this realization, and suddenly I was seeing it everywhere. So it was on a panel like two weeks later, and it was about disruption, and that was it. Just like a very broad, <laughs> um, broad sense. And there was the um, chief strategy officer from Accenture, and there was the CEO of Qualcomm, and uh, you know, like, what what do you do about disruption? Which is the Accenture ridiculously overbroad question. But the thing that occurred to me right then was, um, it's never gonna be the heroic acts of one individual inside of the company, like a genius engineer or an amazing salesperson or like a fantastic marketer or like a CEO who's just really, really smart and makes all the right strategy decisions. Um, it's going to be a matter of organizational agility. Because if you have a powerful current of disruption, like something that's just changing the world, the rise of China, or um, automation of manufacturing, or um, commoditization of what was like an expensive proprietary software solution, or whatever it is, um, you do have to make the right call hopefully, sometimes on some things. So be right about blockchain or whatever you're going to do about the you know, AI. Um, you have an AI strategy. But what really matters is, is the organization agile enough to correct quickly when you learn new things? Because I don't make any predictions about blockchain, not interested. I just, I'm pretty much guaranteed to be wrong no matter what I think. Like if you go three years, four years, five years out. Um, I don't really make any predictions about AI or don't really make any predictions about anything because I just I'm old enough now to know that I'm always wrong and pretty much everyone is always wrong about that stuff and if you're right it's just lucky because it's like you know playing roulette sometimes the ball will land on your your thing but if the there's a high degree of alignment inside of the company um, there's a high degree of trust. If people have that context and awareness of what's going on that comes from the transparency, you know, they feel like they're, they understand how their work fits into the larger whole, um, and there's good, clear channels of communication, then when you need to respond to something, you will be able to. And so the thing to invest in if you're faced with some disruption in your industry is organizational performance, and specifically in that kind of agility, that ability to, to change um, and withstand those those changes. Um, so that's you know an example, um, but I started seeing it everywhere, including why you know what we're selling with Slack. We go talk to customers all the time, um, and prior to that, I would sometimes say this, but after that, this, like I realized this is what it's all about from the CEO's perspective or from other executives' perspective on a larger company. The reason you would want to use Slack is 
to increase that organizational performance, to get that kind of alignment and that kind of agility. And by the way, Slack doesn't give that to you out of the box. Like you don't set it up and then suddenly all of your cultural problems are solved. Um, but it's a very effective instrument for solving them. And you have to put the effort in, you have to plan, you have to set the standards, like the etiquette, the protocol for how people communicate. You have to come up with the right channel structure, um, the right habits and practices. And, um, and once you do that, you have the high likelihood of a real return on the effort that you put into it, which is, um, for anyway, for me, the most important part of my job and the most important result you can get for the company. It's an amazing picture. Thanks for sharing that. And again, no worries. It's it's authentic. We're sitting here, we're drinking. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, having some water. Um, thanks for that picture. It um, it's really helpful um, to to see it, and it's very clear, and um, it, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, definitely. Good. It's. Um, I'm just looking at here. We're almost talking for an hour, which is quite a while already, and it just flies by. I have hundreds of more questions, but we should come to an to an end. And what I usually ask at the end, and I'm very curious about your opinion here. I usually ask for inspiration, books that you read that you would recommend. Like, is there any things? It can be anything from fiction to nonfiction, anything. Um, that you would say, these are my top five reads or my top one read, or if you have the time, look at that. Even if it's, if it's not book, could be videos. Yeah, well, I have, I definitely have some. It's funny is um, when people ask me what I'm reading, I often have to look at my Kindle app or Audible to, to see what I'm reading right now. So it's the first good thing you read on the Kindle. Yeah, I read on the Kindle most of the time. Yeah. Um, I get paperback books. Um, One time, but anyway, I have a very straightforward answer without looking at any of this um, on the two most impactful books for me. And I don't know that these are like are universally um, impactful um, or helpful for people. But given the challenges that I was facing and, and where I was at, one book is called Crucial Conversations, which is just about how to have difficult conversations with people, which is something that is, you know, definitely an important part of my job. Um, not always an important part of everyone's job, per se, but certainly an important part of everyone's life. Mm -hmm. Like, it just it happens in life that you, you have to do that. And if you're a manager, then, you know, you're definitely going to have to. Um, and um, equipping people with the right tools to, to have those effectively is, um, is something that I felt like I was never good at and was really important for me to learn. We have a Our head of people is a guy named Robbie Kwok, who I worked with in the past um, briefly back in the Yahoo days, and we have many mutual friends, and he came to work at Slack. And one thing I like about him is, for him, there are no difficult conversations. It's just, just conversations that have to happen. Um, he doesn't get, he doesn't dread this thing that's going to happen. He's not like all nervous about it. Um, and I wanted to be able to cultivate some of that. So Crucial Conversations mm -hmm. is the book I would recommend there. And then another one that's called Leadership and Self-Deception. And um, this one's harder to describe without sounding like a jerk. <laughs> um, because the kind of the book is about you're actually a jerk. Um, you, whoever is reading it. Um, but uh, I would say the fundamental insight of the book is um, that humans have a very 
bad habit, which shows up all the time um, and can be very difficult to to overcome. Um, but overcoming it is the key to all kinds of important relationships, both in work and, and outside. And I think it's best explained with an example. So you have a new baby and uh, it's 3 a.m., the baby starts crying, you wake up and you think, oh God, I'm so tired. My spouse will wake up in a minute if I just don't do anything and maybe they will go take care of it. And a minute goes by, two minutes. Then you start thinking, okay, she's, she can hear it too. She must be awake and she's just not doing it. Or he, you know, he must be awake uh, and he's, oh God, he's so lazy. Doesn't he know that I have to work tomorrow? Doesn't she know that like I had a very hard day today and I'm just, I'm so tired. Why don't they go do it? Um, and in the book, they call that uh, an act of self-betrayal because you're, it's a little bit harsh, but it's failing to live up to your own ideal. Like, you know, you, you would never want to tell people that you did that. You would never want to admit it. Um, but everyone does things like that. And then in order to justify your own behavior to yourself, you have to make up the story where you were really right to do it and the other person was really wrong. And it's such a trivial example. I can see you smiling because I think yeah. everyone everyone relates to this one. You called me. I, I must have been last night. <laughs> um, everyone relates to this one, but there's like examples like that. I don't know. Like uh. from the smallest scale to the largest scale, dozens of times a day. And I used to, uh, or I still do, when I have a new hire welcome session from the CEO as part of their onboarding, I ask people to put up their hands if they have ever treated someone they love in a way that they later regretted. Mm. So everyone puts up their hand, or they're definitely a psychopath. Like, that's um, be a weird to not have that realization. And the point is, if you're going to be that way with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, with your friends, if you're going to um, fail in living up to your ideals um, of yourself, then what are the odds that you're not going to do that at work? Mm. You're definitely going to do it at work. Um, these people, all of us, mean less to each other than our spouse or our parents or children, um, which is fine, you know, as, as it should be. But let's recognize that and acknowledge it and A, be patient and understanding with one another because we're all going to fail in the same way um, and be patient and understanding with ourselves um, and also just look for that behavior ourselves, change it when you can, own it when you can't um, like and, and be accountable for it. Um, and I feel like that is probably the most fundamental of all keys to elevating the organizational performance is having that kind of trust. Um, you know, I think it's it's very easy to accept some other human beings' limitations and failures um, in an honest environment where they'll also be understanding of you and your own failures. Because it's just, you know, we're just all like that uh, for whatever reason. Who knows? It's unfortunate, but but we all are. Um, so that's the second book. Um, it's long answer, but I think those two for me are like, uh, are like, are the best two. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's a um, great conversation. Yeah. Not only about Slack, about much more than that. Um, thanks for that. Thanks for the time. And, um, I'm glad that we had that talk and I'm looking forward to hear more from you and more from your company here in Germany. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.